I invite you to turn this morning to Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33, that's in the Old Testament after Isaiah, uh, before you get into the beginning part of the New Testament there, Matthew and so forth. It's in between uh, that range. Kind of open the Bible right up to the middle. You'll probably be pretty close. Jeremiah 33 we'll be looking at. And to, uh, to protect my fragile pastoral ego, I won't ask for a, a show of hands of who can remember what passages we covered during Advent last year or certainly the year before. Uh, indeed, I had to look them up myself to, to remember uh, what we looked at. But uh, I was glad to see that we've been covering in our short three and a half years as a church our, our bases fairly well. We looked one year at the verses in Matthew. We looked another year at those in, in Luke and then some in Isaiah and Micah as well. We want to continue even this morning to, to do what we try to do as a church all across the board and, and teach and look at the whole counsel of God. So not just get zeroed in on a couple of scriptures that we love and enjoy, but kind of branching out. And so we're going to do that today uh, with Jeremiah and looking at this passage. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll look at Isaiah 60 in a, a more abbreviated uh, form. So we look at Jeremiah 33. Let me say a few words of introduction, then we'll read the passage. Uh, you'll probably need, as, as I did, a, a little bit of an introduction. Paul shared with us uh, some already as he was reading our call to confession from this chapter. But, but let's take, if you will, with me for just a moment here, a, a wide-angle uh, lens and, and start out big picture, and then we'll zoom in on the specific context of this passage. So you'll see how wide the lens is. Let's start with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve back in the garden... Remember, one of the consequences of their sin of the fall was to be evicted from that land, the, the garden, that place. Not too much further along, though, in the Bible, we see to Abraham God giving his promise of a, a promised land that the people would dwell in. They, uh, they dwelt in it temporarily. They never really controlled it. And then before long, the people of God end up as slaves in the land of Egypt. Moses uh, dramatically leads them out, but then they hesitate. They don't have faith to go into the land, and so they wander for a while longer. And then Joshua eventually takes them in. But even as they arrive in that land, if we look at the book of Judges, for instance, in the Bible, we see this cycle, this pattern that starts to form for the people of God. And it's a pattern that's true for us in the church today. It's a pattern that's true for us individually. And that is that they, they see God's redeeming work. They, they see His salvation and are moved to, to worship Him, to delight in Him, and to seek to obey Him. But then after a while, after a few years, or after a few decades, in the case of the Old Testament people, they start to grow cold about the whole thing. Start to drift away from the Lord being their first love. And he, in an effort really to restore them, to kind of shock them, to bring them back to himself, removes his hand of blessing and allows them to go through various difficulties to the point of where in that book of Judges, so named, they call out and ask God to send someone who would rescue them, to bring a fresh work of redemption and rescue and restoration. Then we see, and we're speeding up here now, on into the time of the kings, you have Solomon and Saul and King David. We see that God is bringing about this kingship that the people called out for 
And it's a precursor for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that we worship. And, and for a season, even though those kings are flawed, things look pretty good. Things look pretty well in terms of the land and their establishment there. And then they begin to fade away again. And God graciously, in His corrective will, brings about correction, brings about consequences, brings about discipline, if you will, in the form of threatening to remove the promised land. In 722 B.C., it happens for the entire northern kingdom. The kingdom split in half. The people of God are divided. And so they're hauled off into exile by the Assyrians. And then we come into the context of our passage today. But you've got to understand and have a little bit of that background to grasp. Now the, the southern kingdom has remained. And they were generally more faithful to the Lord, but they've been wandering as well. And the Babylonians with Nebuchadnezzar are right on their doorstep, literally. It's 587 B.C. And everything is about to fall. Everything is about to crumble, literally. And right in the midst of this, even as Jeremiah is proclaiming that this is going to happen, that the exile is going to transpire, he proclaims to them God's promise to love them, to care for them, to in the future bring restoration through a Messiah, through a righteous branch. And it answers for us some important questions today. What's the place of the promise of God in our lives? And how is the work of Christmas, the work of the Messiah coming, a fulfillment of that? And how can we draw encouragement, assurance, and joy from that promise? I invite you to stand then as I read aloud and you read along silently, Jeremiah 33. And we're going to look at uh, verses 14 through 22 and then jump to the last verse in the Scripture in the chapter as well. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings and burnt grain offerings and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. But as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured. So I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. And then read the last sentence of the chapter in verse 26. For I will restore their fortunes, 
and will have mercy on them. You may be seated. And as you do, let's pray together again. Oh Lord God, we thank You for the centering peace that Your Word is to us. In the midst, Lord, of a a season uh, even that we know is uh, in general focused on You and is about Christmas and Christ, oh, how easily we are distracted away. And so we pray that You would refocus us today and even show us fresh and new things about the reality of the promise that comes through this righteous branch to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God's a pretty interesting disciplinarian of us, His people, His children, isn't He? Most of us, if we're dealing with a cantankerous child and moving from those steps of maybe sending the child to their room, maybe losing some privileges, maybe even about to go nuclear with the spanking, are not so good at simultaneously, at the same moment, reminding that little one of how precious and wonderful they are to us, of how deeply we love and care for them of the fact that in the future we're going to spend time with them playing in the yard or getting ice cream or putting together that Lego set. Maybe we ought to be more that way as parents, but we typically aren't. But thankfully, God isn't like us as a parent. Look at what is happening to these people in Jeremiah. The the Lord is, is lowering the boom. He is bringing down the hammer, if you will. Now, He's already been patient with them for centuries after centuries. Waiting. He's already been gracious to send them prophet after prophet, even though some of them they killed. To remind them to come back to the Lord. To remind them of the joy and delight that they can have in Him and the foolhardiness of running away from Him and seeking joy in other things. He's been patient. But now He's bringing down the hammer again in that effort to restore them by removing them from the land. And, and, and that's not so bizarre, is it? Any more than uh, parents raising sort of the level of consequences for a little one who's struggling. What is amazing is that right in the midst of that, He affirms, He assures them in this passage we saw today that that one is going to come, this promised one. And that through that, He's going to bring rescue. He's going to bring restoration. He's going to bring joy and life to the people. That He's not abandoned them indefinitely. That He's not rejecting them. It's a little bit, if you think about it, this idea of the promises that God made here, like getting a package at, at Christmas time. And, and, and the package on the outside perhaps says, written in big letters, gift. And then you open it up inside, and it's a multifaceted package. You've got the, the main item. Perhaps for the men, it's a, it's a power tool of some sort. And the various attachments then are packaged in with it to, to allow it to really do all the things that you would like to do with that new tool. 
Perhaps for the ladies, it's a, it's a new outfit that you've received. And there's the scarf in there with it and the bracelet to go with that primary thing, that new outfit. If you look at our verses today, we have this box marked promise. And inside the box is the, the main thing, which is the righteous branch, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And then, if I can put it this way, the, the various things that go along with it. Salvation, security, forgiveness, and even the fulfillment of this Old Testament kingship and this Old Testament priestly sacrifice. All that stuff packaged into one. You can turn with me if you'd like to in your worship guide and see the main idea then that we'll draw, I think, from these verses today is that since God has raised up this righteous branch, the Old Testament people looked forward to it, we look back upon it, we can grow in the nourishment of His promises. And I pray that would be true for us today in the weeks to follow, certainly as we go into Christmas morning. Why do we need to to hear about this righteous branch and these precious promises that come through Him? Well, we certainly, as we've already prayed today, we live in a time where we're reminded just in the last few weeks of the brokenness that we have nationally. And it didn't probably, for most of us, take this Connecticut tragedy to remind us of that. We know that that's going on all across the board. Just as the Old Testament people were experiencing a national tragedy and desperately needed to be reminded of God's promises, His truth. But it's not just those kind of suffering and loss and sense of brokenness that are on a national level. It, it hits us individually. Time at, at Christmas time can be really enjoyable with family and friends in some settings, but it can also be tough. It can also actually bring to light and highlight some of the brokenness of relationships, family and friends. Not to mention the fact that it's a season. I don't know how your month has been going. But I've woken up every you know, morning, I think, this month and thought, well, this is, this is Advent season. We're gearing up for celebrating Jesus' birth. And then my day goes on and mid-morning and mid-afternoon and my heart wanders. And my heart isn't worshiping or seeking the Lord the way it should. So we need that reminder of God's promise in the midst of our individual lives. And not just through difficulty, We need it in the midst of the blessings we enjoy. There's a lot of goodness, uh, good food, maybe material blessings, maybe a marriage that's that's growing and really thriving in some good ways or some good things happening in our parenting with our families or whatever it may be. What a fuller picture we get if we see those things, those blessings, as overflowing from the promises of God, of the righteous branch and whose promises we can nourish our lives. Take a look at the passage with me here in Jeremiah chapter 33, and let's walk down through a few of the things that are in this box. So we're opening up this this package, and we're taking a look at what's inside of it, if you will. Verse 14 reminds us of the promise. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise... God fulfills the promise. 
What a reminder that is. And, and it's not a promise that's geared or that's tied to the situation. It can't be. What's going on in Jeremiah? The walls are about to crumble on their precious holy city, Jerusalem. And their existence as a people of God, as they know it, is about to crumble and for them to be hauled off. So it can't be based on the situations in our lives. The joy of God's promise comes simply because God is true and God is faithful to His covenant. How much more does that joy, that assurance, that confidence flow to us today who don't simply look forward to the future fulfillment of that promise but get to look back on seeing what has happened in Jesus and have the full testimony of it here in this book. That's the promise. We see the promise as well. If you look back with me at some of the verses we read in our call to confession and assurance of pardon, where we try when we can to kind of weave all of the worship service together because the worship service isn't just about what I'm doing now and it's not just about the music and it's not just about the prayer. It's not just about the confession. It's about everything together. Look back with me in that Jeremiah 33 chapter to the verses that uh, Paul read earlier. Verse 8, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin. How how does the promise come about? It comes through Jesus cleansing us and purifying us. And then it goes on to describe some of what's going to happen when we see and lay hold of this promise. Verse 9, the city shall be to me a name of joy a praise and a glory before the nations. And then going on down to verse 10 and 11. The city is described as a desolate sort of place. But then verse 11 reminds us, oh no, because of the promise, because of the fulfillment of what will happen through the Messiah, a voice of mirth and a voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing, as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Be a place of joy, of thanksgiving, of celebration in what the Lord has done. That's the promise. Look with me for a minute at the the branch. Verse 15 says, In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up. It's amazing to see that God is the one who causes this to happen. It's not a mistake. Jesus doesn't stumble into it. We uh, had the privilege finally to get out and see the Hobbit movie last night. I could show, get a show of hands on who's seen that. I bet, I bet a good chunk of us have. I hope you have. It's a good movie. The Hobbits, I, I don't think it's just me that's making this up, but the Hobbits, I think, are intended by uh, Tolkien to be sort of Christ figures within the story. No one figure kind of fulfills all of that. But they fulfill the element of his humility, of his simplicity. They're little tiny folks from a little tucked away sort of place who live humble lives and don't want to have any adventures. Bilbo in the Hobbit movie and Frodo you see later in the other parts of the story are these hobbits, and, and, and Bilbo in the Hobbit story, you see, he, he kind of stumbles into it. It's not something he's uh, able to do right off the bat. He kind of has to grow and develop into it, into being this sort of hero of the story. The Lord Jesus, He doesn't stumble into it. It's a humble background. 
Christmas, a manger, a stable. But he doesn't stumble. God purposefully sends him to do this role. And he's a branch described here. You know, it's interesting to think about a a branch as compared to those things that most of us have standing in our living room right now. You've got one. You you might even call it, hey, I've got a live tree. You and I don't have a live tree in our, in, our, in our living rooms right now. We've got a tree that's working its way towards being dead. You know, you pour that water in underneath, and I've been, uh, my dad's an engineer, so he, you know, he would be ashamed. He's rigged up a whole funnel system that he rigs, and he can pour the water from the top and, and doesn't have to get on his hands and knees. I still crawl around underneath that tree to put the water in. But, but you put that water in, and, and it starts to soak it up for a couple of days and a couple more days and a couple more days. And then those needles start to turn a little more brittle. And there's a few more of them on the ground. And, and you basically got a, a huge fire hazard sitting in the middle of your living room. And you, and you know it is when you pick it up uh, next week or whenever you finally haul yours out to the, to the sidewalk. And, and the whole house is covered in all the needles. Because that thing's just, just good for burning at that point. That's because it's been lopped off. Right? It's been disconnected from the branch. From the trunk it's been removed jesus on the other hand is a shoot described in isaiah 53 and if you want to turn there with me you can because i think it adds some fullness to what we read in jeremiah and he's coming up out of this root being nourished if you will growing out of the the history of god's redemptive plan and his salvation plan isaiah 53 begins with this in verse 1. Who has believed what they heard from us? He's saying, you know, who, who would really believe this thing? There's something about it that's unbelievable. Why? He goes on to tell us. Verse 2. For he, describing the Messiah, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. And then jumping on down, verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Verses 10 and 11 there as well. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The Lord caused this branch to be raised up. The Lord's will was to crush this Savior for us. In verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Look back with me at at Jeremiah 33, and let's put a few of these pieces together, and I think you're going to like I think it will be satisfying to you and encouraging to your, your soul as it was for me this week to see how they come together. Look at verse 16 of Jeremiah 33. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which I, it will be called. The Lord our righteousness. We just read about it in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, that Jesus is going to come not simply to impart righteousness, 
but to impute righteousness, to, to put it in our account, to allow us to be credited. And what that means, people, is that regardless of what you've done in your past or haven't done in your past, that you're ashamed of, that's on your heart this morning as you think about the Lord, that even maybe makes it intimidating to walk into this place of worship, we're reminded that Jesus is our righteousness. He pays as our substitute, pound for pound. He not only does that, though, gives us that credited, gifted righteousness, but He gives us imparted righteousness. You think about a righteous branch, Maybe your mind jumps as mine does to John chapter 15. Jesus says he's the vine. We there are the branches. And he says, abide in me and I will abide in you. So Jesus is our righteousness because he allows us to be counted righteous even though we're not. And he's our righteousness in that if we root ourselves in him through faith, the nourishment that comes from His branch, nourishes us to grow in our righteousness so that we might love others better, so that we might seek Him, we might worship Him, might see His kingdom coming. And then the last thing we see in these verses, in verse 17 and on down through 22, I hope you followed along with it. It's, it's a little bit maybe harder to grasp than the first few verses we've looked at here. It talks about two, um, two lines, if you will, two pathways of the Old Testament work of God in, in the people's lives. One of them was through the king who would provide rule. And another one of them was through the priest who would provide sacrifice and satisfaction to, to God. Operate in that way. Another one that this doesn't mention would be the, the prophets who would proclaim the word of God. But this focuses in on the king's. And it says the, the line of David is going to keep going. And it uses this sort of weird illustration that says, you know, unless you can disjoint day and night from their cycle, so unless you can change the very fabric of the way the universe operates, you're not going to be able to change my fulfillment, God says, to fulfill the promise of a king and of a priest. And we don't need to go into all the New Testament passages but we've hopefully been reading them as we've been reading the Christmas story uh, individually or to our, our families. You read about them at the beginning of the book of Matthew. And it tells us that Jesus comes in the line of King David. That he's going to be the fulfillment of that king that we need. Someone who's worthy for us to follow and bow down to. And Hebrews chapter 7 and Hebrews chapter 9 are going to remind us as well that He's the fulfillment of the priestly work of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And He does it this way. Not by offering up another one, a lamb, but by offering up Himself as our priest and as our Savior. All of this is God declaring to us that His promise has come that His promise is fulfilled through this righteous branch, that we have security, that we have salvation through it, they have the fulfillment of this royal mediator through it as well. The story of the last of the Mohicans is one that came to my mind as I read through these verses this week. And the movie version from the 90s is definitely not one for the kiddos to watch. 
But it is a compelling telling of this story that's on one level is about the last of these Indian tribe, uh, Chingachgook, I think was his name. And of course, the impressive story of these battle scenes as the French and Indian War is going on. But in the midst of that and what weaves it all together is the tale of Daniel Day-Lewis's character, Hawkeye, and his love for Cora, the daughter of the British officer. Cora, whose life is being pursued, uh, she is being threatened with death at the hands of, of Magua, the vengeful Indian who's seeking her demise. And you remember Hawkeye and his fellow uh, Mohican Indians seeking to defend them and relentlessly fighting for Cora and her sister until they reach this point where they're underneath that waterfall and they're out of powder for their weapons and they're greatly outnumbered by Magua and his forces headed the way. And I'll admit that it is every bit of the Hollywood romantic scene that we've come used to and that I admittedly am a bit jaded towards, but it nevertheless is a powerful scene. As Hawkeye, Daniel Day-Lewis's character, takes hold of Cora passionately and holds her in his arms, informing her that he's got to leave for a while. He's got to retreat so that he can come back in the future. And he declares to her boldly, I will find you. I will come. I will. He leaves. Korah's brought before the Indian tribe, one of the tribes, to be burned for the crimes of her British military officer father. And then Hawkeye shows up at just the right moment. And you remember what he says. He says, I'm from the branch from the tribe, from the lineage of noble Indian warriors. And I want to offer myself up for Korah so that she can be released. If we want to bend the illustration just a little bit more, hopefully without breaking it, we see that he also demonstrates himself as one who's from both this white an Indian background in his upbringing as an adopted son. And he fulfills, if you will, both of those roles just as this Messiah of ours fulfills the kingship, fulfills the priestly work, fulfills all that's needed for you and me. Listen as you think about that proclamation of human love in that movie. Verse 14 of Jeremiah. God reminding us that He will come. He will save us, declares the Lord. I will fulfill the promises. Look at verse, uh, last part of verse 15. In those days that time will come when I will raise up a righteous branch. Verse 16, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. It will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Verse 22, I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant. And then that last verse of chapter 33 that I wanted to make sure we read. I will restore their fortunes and I will have mercy on them. Let's pray together.
Oh, Father, we praise You that Your Word declares, it's not something we've made up, that Your love to us is like a bride to a bridegroom. The bridegroom to the bride. Lord, we praise You for that as we meditate today on this righteous branch coming, as we are reminded of the promises that are fulfilled in Him, that, Lord, You not only said You would come, that You will fulfill this, but You have done it. Lord, fill our, our hearts, fill our souls, fill our minds, our wills, our emotions with worship unto You today. Because of this amazing work of the fulfillment of the promise through this righteous branch offered up for us. We don't deserve it. We deserve your wrath. But yet receive your promise of grace and goodness and mercy. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.